Thanks, Colin. Good evening, everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this evening in this beautiful day that you've given us as your people. Thank you for the fellowship that we have with you and with others through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that as we dig into your word this evening that you would open our eyes to see your glory more and more and that we would leave here both praising you for your goodness and with a desire to learn more of your character. Would you guide us through your spirit in all truth as we learn humbly so that we might see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. I ask this in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, our passage tonight is found in Second Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. And I stole the title right from Peter, and I just called it, We, are, we Were Eyewitnesses of His Majesty. Um, so let's read that. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him the majestic glory, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone else, someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the holy spirit this is the word of the lord All right, well, I thought, I thought it might be somewhat helpful tonight to review a bit about Second Peter because it's been almost a month since Collins started preaching through this series. And as I have read and studied this book recently, I've loved every bit of it uh, because it's especially full of hope, and that's obviously a hope that can't be found in this world. Now, Peter is writing near the end of his life, and when he's about to be martyred or put to death for his faith, and he's writing to believers. Now, we're not exactly sure uh, where, but we do know that they were believers nonetheless. And he's reminding his hearers of the truth so that after his departure or his death, they may be able at any time to recall these things. And he says that in verse 15. Now, he clearly wants the hearers of this letter to come to know God more by growing in grace and peace as they come to more knowledge of who Jesus is. And he also desires that they hold fast to the hope that is found in Jesus, that he is both alive now and will return to judge both the living and the dead. Now in this book, Peter is contrasting the truths about Christ, so who he is, what he has done, and his promises, with the lies of mankind, false teachings, false religions, worldly living, etc., he wants Christians to understand that this, despite the opposition of the world, God's grace empowers us to live differently through Jesus Christ. Now, specifically in this message, he's in a way defending the faith by giving an apologetic argument and taking it a step further to refute the, the, what the false teachers were most likely teaching at this time. And during that time period, there were false teachers had risen through the church 
and they were saying that his that the apostles and him included were teaching myths about the second coming of Christ. Now he's following his own advice a little bit from 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 where he says that even in the midst of suffering we should in our hearts honor Christ and the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense for any to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect this understanding will help us see how peter did just that as we look at this passage and also moving forward into our study more in second peter i also pray that this will help us as we live in a world that isn't all that different from what the one that peter was writing to we too are surrounded by people who deny the risen christ they teach half-truths or inaccuracies wrapped up as a truth, and we must know how to discern the truth and cling to who our hope and faith is based in. Think of your life for a second. Do you have any friends or family or co-workers or teammates that may say to you that what you believe about Jesus is crazy? I know I do. A lot of people think that what we believe that's found in this very book is irrational. They might ask, what reasons do you have to believe in this Jesus? Or do you believe that crazy talk about Jesus coming back? We should also ask ourselves some questions as well, I think. If you believe in him, do you live like he's coming back? Are you prepared to give an account of how you have also witnessed Christ's majesty? Now this evening I want to talk about two testimonies. It'll actually be three testimonies, but I don't want to spoil the fun right now so you'll have to stay awake and listen for the third one it's wound in there uh, the first testimony is that of peter and the apostles the second testimony is that of the prophets of old now, both, both testimonies speak directly to the same thing that jesus is the christ who lives and reigns and will return and make all things new now at that time and still to this day the most powerful piece of evidence that can be used in a court of law is called direct evidence this is evidence that can be based on a few things, such as security camera footage or fingerprints found at the crime scene or an eyewitness testimony. Now, back then, clearly they didn't have the technology that we do now. So if someone saw something happen and gave an account of what took place, that held a lot of weight. And that still can be said the same of eyewitness testimonies today. Now, I'll give you two different scenarios to think about. Picture an act of arson, someone attempting to burn down a building. In scenario one, an eyewitness gets to the scene as the building is burning and sees someone fleeing the scene that they think was involved in starting the fire. Can they just accuse that person of starting the fire without any evidence? Well, they could, but they'd have to build a case based on something called indirect evidence or circumstantial evidence. And that evidence is, would have to be based on deduction or other facts that were gathered at the scene of the crime. And it takes a roundabout kind of approach to having to prove that what they said is true. Now in scenario number two, an eyewitness arrives to the building before it's on fire and they see someone outside lighting the building on fire. If that witness gives an account of that in a trial or a police report, then that's considered direct evidence. The eyewitness literally saw the crime unfolding and witnessed the person commit the crime. Which of these two evidence, two types of evidence gives a stronger support of a testimony, indirect or direct evidence? 
I think even the name says it, direct evidence is most certainly going to hold more weight. And here, Peter is using direct evidence to refute the claim that he and other apostles are teaching myths. Not only that, but also look at what Peter does here in this passage. He doesn't just use his own testimony, which he had done in the previous verses in chapter 1, but he takes it to the next level, and he says, we did not follow. Did you catch that? He's bringing in other eyewitness testimonies to give even more strength to this account of what had happened. He's saying, I'm not the only one, but the other apostles can attest to this truth as well. What claim is he making, though? He's making a claim based on eyewitness accounts, both his and others, that Jesus is who Christians have heard that he is. He is our God and our Savior, and that what you have heard about him returning is also true. What grounds does Peter have to make this claim while also bringing others to the witness stand, so to speak? Well, I think you can look at that as twofold. First, we know that Peter is writing this letter to refute false teachings. Uh, here, he is specifically trying to disprove false teachers who were denying the second coming of Christ. And these teachers were saying something like, well, where is this second coming that you talk of? It hasn't happened, so it's fake news. But Peter is saying, no, no, no. Listen, Christ will return, and here's why. He's saying, trust me, when we proclaim this good news and the hope that we, we can have in Christ, we aren't following myths that these false teachers are claiming that we are, but in fact we saw, heard, and experienced everything firsthand the first time that Jesus was here. The fact that everything happened as predicted the first time, just about 30 years previously to him writing this letter, makes the claims of Christ returning a certainty. Secondly, Peter is, in a pastoral way, he's trying to solidify the faith of these believers who are hearing conflicting reports about Jesus. Think of it this way. I'm sure many here have written letters of recommendation for someone. I'm sure you, th this may have been for a job or college application or something along these lines. And if you've ever written one, you know that when you write this document, you're writing about, or you're writing to someone who may have never met the person that you are writing about. But you want them, the potential employer or admissions counselor, to know the character and the reliability of that person for which you're writing the letter. Because of that, you write of the great traits that this person has and ones that would be helpful for that job or that would make them a marketable or a good candidate. You're personally testifying that this person is worthy of the job or acceptance into that college. Peter's kind of doing that here. Not that Jesus needs a letter of recommendation because the entire Bible is about him, but to encourage the Christians hearing and reading this letter, he does it. He puts all his cards on the table as he knows death is nearing for him. And he says, listen to what I'm saying because I was an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. Peter walked with, he talked with, he learned from, and he did everything alongside of Jesus during his earthly ministry. He isn't giving them hearsay or circumstantial evidence. This is an eyewitness account. Peter was there when Jesus proclaimed the good news to crowds of people at the Sermon on the Mount. He was there in Matthew 9 when Jesus healed two blind men. He was there in Luke 9 when Jesus healed a boy who was possessed. 
He was there in John 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. He was there when Jesus himself was resurrected and was with them for 40 days as recorded in Acts 1. And it says there that he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Peter was an eyewitness to the power of God made manifest in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He too trusted in Christ and was sent out to preach this good news. This is what he's personally basing his claims on. But in the fuller scope, he's also basing these claims on the risen Christ himself, of whom he's talking about. In verse 17, we see Peter draw attention to the fact that he, Peter, was present at the time of the transfiguration. Now this event has had many sermons preached on it, and it deserves much study because it's nothing short of absolutely incredible. And if I could, I'd probably just talk about this because I love picturing this happen in my mind. Um, and it's all recorded in, uh, it's recorded in all synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And it was when Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain with Jesus, and they saw the glory of God unveiled in Jesus Christ. It says in Matthew 17, too, that he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light, and we just read that. The words transfigured in the Greek, it's the same word that we get the word metamorphosis from. What do you think of when you think of the word metamorphosis? Probably butterflies. At least that's what I think of. Because most of us have learned of how when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and emerges as a butterfly after some time, that's called metamorphosis. Merriam-Webster defines metamorphosis as the change of physical form, structure, or substance, especially by supernatural means, or a striking alteration in appearance, character, or circumstance. Now, Jesus' character didn't change when this happened, but surely this was both a supernatural and a striking alteration in his appearance. Remember in our current sermon series to John 8, they literally saw the light of the world unveiled before their very eyes. Think back to Exodus 33 and 34 uh, with me, where Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he asks God if he can see his face, if he can see his glory. What does God say? No, you can't see my face because no man shall see me and live. And that's Exodus 33:20. Instead, God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, covers or veils his face so that when God passes by, he doesn't see them. But then he removes that veil so that Moses gets to see a picture, gets to see God's back. When Moses goes down from the mountain, we read of how the skin of his face shone, and when Aaron and the others saw him, they were afraid to go near him. Think of that. The reflection of Moses seeing God was enough for his face to glow, but it was still merely a reflection of the source of light. Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, the source of Moses' glowing face was outside of him. Let's contrast that a little bit with the account of what happened at the Transfiguration. Jesus' face shone like the sun because he is the glory of God. He himself is the true light source. He doesn't just reflect the light, but rather he is the light. At that moment on that mountain, the human flesh that Christ had put on to come and dwell among his people could not contain his glory, and he was literally glowing. And these men witnessed it, and that fueled them to go out and proclaim, I was an eyewitness to his majesty. 
This is a preview of the new Jerusalem where all saints will live with our king forever. And Revelation 21, 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light, and the lamp is the lamb. In this world, we need a creation of God, the sun, to shed light so that we can see, but that isn't necessary in the new heavens and new earth, a.k.a. when Christ returns and what Peter is talking about here in this passage. We won't need a created light source because Jesus' glory will be all the light that we need. And here, Peter, James, and John got a foretaste of that which was to come. But it gets better. Not only did they see this, but at the very, at the very same time they heard God the Father, here referred to as the majestic glory, say from heaven, This is my beloved Son, or my Son the Beloved, the One and the Only, the one that I have promised from time past, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. This is the bonus testimony on top of the other two, but it's actually the most important testimony of the three. God the Father at the transfiguration gives testimony to who Jesus is. God the Father bears witness to God the Son's majesty. And these men, just like Aaron and the others in Exodus, they were scared. They were scared because they realized that they truly were standing on hallowed ground and that they were in the presence of the creator and sustainer of all things. This is the ultimate truth that Peter is basing his own testimony on. It's, it's the essential, it's, it is essential because it shows that what he writes in verse 21 is true, that no prophecy has ever produced by the, was ever produced by the will of man, but rather from God. The second testimony here is, is that of the prophets, of old who gave us the prophetic word referred to in verse 19. Now get it, to get a good grasp on what Peter is talking about here, we can look back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10, where in his first letter he wrote, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Remember, the promised seed from Genesis 3 was always on the mind of the Jewish, of the Jewish people. And as God revealed his plan of redemption, progressively through the different prophets of the Old Testament, from the promises given by God to Adam, to Noah, and to Abraham, God continually revealed the work that he was doing through his people. The prophets of Israel declared the truths of God to his people so that they knew they were still in a covenant relationship with him. Look at the account of the transfiguration and how this even is shown here. On the mountain with Jesus, the apostles also saw Moses and Elijah. That's representative of all the law and the prophets which was the entirety of the Jewish scriptures being fulfilled by Jesus. And what does Peter mean by we have their word more fully confirmed? He's showing that the grace of God revealed in Jesus is confirmation again that Christ will return. We see here a picture of what's stated in Hebrews 1, that long ago, at many times, in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. As one commentator puts it very well, 
Peter is saying, don't just believe that Christ is coming back, but also believe the scriptures. The return of Christ is sure because scripture is absolutely sure. Based on what Peter and the apostles have said, and based on what was prophesied in the Old Testament, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything that's needed to see and understand these truths. These truths that can be made known throughout, that, that, that have been made known throughout time so that you would trust Christ. Another way to look at this is, is saying that the entire Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, was given to us by God himself to point us to Jesus. The testimonies in this passage, which encompass the entire biblical text, point to who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. From the biblical account, or the prophets of old, we see that God has promised that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and therefore put his people back into a correct relationship with him. This relationship had been destroyed because of the sin in the Garden of Eden. All throughout history, mankind has been trying to make a way back to God, or to heaven on their own. The Tower of Babel, the Golden Calf, different religions, and thinking that if we just do more good than bad in our lives, then we'll get to heaven on our own. But God has made it clear that nothing that we can do on our own can cover up the great chasm between us. This is why in His infinite wisdom and grace, He has sent Jesus to do what we could not and bridge that gap by His life, His death, and His resurrection. Now, right now, we need both the Word of God and the Spirit of God to direct and guide us because we are naturally dead in our trespasses and sin, and we turn our back on our Creator. In our natural disposition, we would rather follow the world and not submit to the authority of God. But because He has given us everything that we need to believe this gospel and trust in Christ. He says we would do well to pay attention to these truths because they are a light shining in a dark place. What is that dark place? Well, it's the world that we live in. A dark place in which you, just like those Christians in the first century, constantly hear messaging that runs contrary to what's found in the Word of God. The Greek and Roman culture was enamored with master orators, people who could develop an argument, whether it was true or not, and persuade others to join them in that belief because of the way that they presented the argument and not necessarily based on the validity of what they said. Think of our day and age. Does that sound familiar? Look in popular culture, in everyday marketing and commercials, in other religions, in politics, and even sometimes in the church. We hear people trying to supplant the truth of the gospel with lies wrapped in fancy talk. But Peter and Paul didn't buy into this approach, but rather they sought simply to present the gospel, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of God is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The truth that the prophets proclaimed and taught, the truth that Paul believed and taught, the truth that Peter believed and taught, the truth that if you are a Christian, believe and hopefully proclaim to others, the world in darkness, which is perishing, says, 
That truth is folly. It's nonsense. It's madness. It's absurd. How could you ever believe that? But because the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and has removed that veil from your eyes, you can now see clearly that this is not foolishness, but rather the power of God that has saved, is saving, and will save you. Christian, you don't live in darkness. Psalm 119, 105, a very popular verse that says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You don't live in darkness because God himself has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He has also given you his word to light your way in this darkness that we now live in in the world. This very word promises you that through faith in Christ you can live forever in his presence. Like these first century Christians, you too can cling to these promises. You too can trust and say, as we often do with the words of institution at the Lord's Supper, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The great hope of the Christian faith is that th the things of this dark world will pass away and they will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth where there is no pain, no suffering, no tears, and no sin, and no darkness. Sin will be a thing of the past and God's people won't even remember sin because we will be so enamored by Christ's glory. Right now, we look to the future and his glorious return, but when he returns and we are in that kingdom, there is nowhere to live but there in the present, and that means in his presence. And we will joyfully say, just as Peter did, we are eyewitnesses to his majesty. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly.